In the past, we've heard guest preachers who are professors, some are, are evangelists, some of them are missionaries, some of them are military personnel. But my friends, we've never had a bishop preach. And we have the Bishop of Samford this morning. This was ratified by the Board of Trustees. Did you know about this? No, he's not, he's not really the Bishop of Samford. I consider him that, though. Uh, Wes Spears is, uh, has been active here. In fact, we're really, really fortunate that he's here to preach uh, this Sunday because he is in charge of the Sanford Sunday program. For those of you who are unaware of that, every Sunday a different Baptist association in Alabama opens up its pulpits to uh, young ministerial students at Sanford to go and preach. And Wes is in charge of that this year. He's also in charge of uh, the weekly student-led worship uh, at Sanford, which draws a, a lot of people into Reed Chapel. Uh, he's also very active in, gosh, Wes, Ethics Bowl, Omicron Delta Kappa. We could go on and on and on. And he's also sort of smart. Um, he's also very active in the pre-ministerial scholars. I was looking around, I thought, it's so cool, because we've really been blessed by that program. Sarah Curley's out there, and she's in it. Uh, some of y'all remember Aaron Carr or Larry McCutcheon, who just got engaged. Does everybody know about that, that he's an, he's an engaged guy? Uh, who am I missing? Ethan is a pre-men scholar. And there's one other one who, um, who else? The one I was thinking of. Anyway, well, Wes, and we're fortunate to have him preaching uh, this morning. Uh, and I'll call him the bishop because, really, he, he is known kind of as the just a very, very highly regarded, I'll say, conscience among uh, his peers there at Sanford, along with faculty and staff. Just very, very, very highly regarded. He is heading to Duke Divinity School uh, come fall, where he has a full tuition scholarship, along with a substantive uh, 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 what would you say, stipend, I guess, uh, for each year. So, again, we're very, very proud of him. It's been fun to be a part of seeing him develop while he's been here. But uh, it's great that he's here to preach for us this morning. And, Wes, we welcome you. Gave a really great message in the first hour, and you will really be graced by what he has to say. Now, there's one other person uh, I want to introduce who will introduce a friend of his. Many of you know about the rich ministry we have uh, with Mongolia, uh, primarily through connections made with uh, Gontamer Badrock, uh, he and Dagi, along with, uh, on our end of things, Bill Dean and others. And that's just become a, an annual uh, uh, event, really, for us to have folks go over there and minister. And we're very, very fortunate today to have uh, one of Gontamer's partners in ministry, and he's soon to be heading back to Ulaanbaatar and uh, continue in his ministry that he does in association with Gontamer and others. So, Gontamer, will you please bring your friend forward, and Gontamer will introduce him and also translate for him, but we welcome you and are thrilled that you're here this morning. Good morning. It's so great to be here and introduce my friend. His name is Tugulter. And his last name is so long that even the computer breaks down. So I, I, I just, even I cannot pronounce his last name. So. But he is a very dear friend of ours. And he, together with myself and Bayer you met him in January, serves in the military academy and military of Mongolia. And he is a spiritual leader that brings the truth to many people in Mongolia and lead many into Christ through evangelist discipleship. Also, he is a, a happy husband that married up to his wife, Ebe, and he is proud dad of two children, the oldest daughter and uh, the youngest son, and every night he cries because he missed them. And uh, we're so thankful for Skype. Uh, and he is a blessed man and dear friend of ours, so let you again introduce our friend, Tudultir. Good morning. Good morning. 
I'm so blessed to be here to come today. I'm very thankful and very honored to give a, have an opportunity to share my testimony. Um, I am a, a grew up in a Buddhist family. So I was acquainted with the Buddhist teaching and chanting. So in year 2000, I joined military academy as a cadet. But a year later, my dad passed away. At that time, the Lama, the Buddhist monk, said that if you believe other faith, your family will be destructed and you face ruins. As a, he strongly believed in those words of Lama. So as my dad passed away, I had a very deep void in my heart, so I started drinking, smoking, and attending different parties. One of the reasons is that he was the one who was holding him and, and disciplining him, and now that uh, person who was holding him is gone. And one day my younger brother came... Uh, accepted Jesus and came to, to him. And he shared Christ with Togo, but he was very mad at him. He said, you wanted to see the destruction of your family. You don't remember what the Lama said? So he took the Bible, tore apart, and beat his brother. So it was my life on a way of destruction. I met a teacher at that time, Gantamur. This is a weird part. Yeah, so he, he showed a lot of care and love. And he was, uh, Togo was very attracted to that uh, care and that love and that uh, appreciation. So as he shared Christ to Togo, he would be not accepting, he was rejecting, he was not, uh, he was ignorant. Same time as I was encountered with uh, my teacher, my life was going down, and my mom was very concerned, and he, she would kept asking through tears, "Why you're destroying your life?" Because every time, almost every night, he would come home drunk and, and pretty much destroy his life. But as I was his teacher, uh, there was a relationship that we had together, and he was able to see and, uh, and embrace the love that we provide for him. And he was very interested why he is different. 
once his life is different. So why he is showing this love? What is behind this love? And one day God touched my heart and revealed himself to me and I surrendered my life to him. So he kind of made this negotiation and said, I'll give you a chance, Jesus, you know, give you a chance to change my life. If it doesn't change, then I'll just stop believing. But if it changes, I'll continue my faith. But uh, since the moment I accepted the Lord, there was great changes happening in my life. Even my mom would testify when she said, your life is changing and there is a great good changes in you. What is the reason or what is the cause behind that? And that moment I decided to follow Jesus fully with a wholeheartedly and after graduation from military academy, as I got commissioned as an officer, I felt that God is leading to be a full-time minister. And currently I work with all cadets of military and police and bring the gospel to them. I'm very thankful that God is changing me daily, momentarily. Thank you. Also deeply appreciate that this church, Brooklyn Baptist Church, is deeply uh, having a strong partnership with our military minister back in Mongolia, and through your prayers and help and support, we are uh, achieving the kingdom. And we are one in Christ. Thank you. Our scripture for today is John 20 through 24, 24 through 29. You can read along in your pew Bibles at uh, page 769. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands, the imprint of the nails, and put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. After eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst, and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger, and see my hands, and reach here with your hand, and put it into my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God, Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. This is the word of the Lord. I don't believe in the resurrection. I know. I know I've been around here for a while. 
and it's just kind of the expectation for people like me. I know, and I know it's been a week, and I know last week everybody was celebrating, and there were songs and all sorts of happy things, but I just didn't see it. I don't have that kind of hope, you know. I just can't believe that easily. I know you've got your arguments, and I think they're pretty convincing sometimes. But it's not enough. Because after everything that I've seen in my life since I've been born, all the war and the hunger and the suffering, it's just too much. I don't understand how you can look on all of that suffering and pain and misery and say that he got up. I just can't believe that. What makes you think that we're so special? that we know who the Messiah was. What makes you think that somebody from Nazareth, of all places, was so special? I think Nathaniel got it right when he said, what good can come out of Nazareth? What makes you think some carpenter's son who could perform some neat tricks is the son of God? That he got back up. Because they killed him. They killed him last Friday. And if he could have saved himself, wouldn't he have done it then? I just can't believe this story that you're telling me. It's too much. Peter, I know what you saw. Mary, I know what you think you saw. John, I know that there was nothing there. You don't have to tell me again. There's so many kinds of explanations. I don't have that kind of hope, friends. Don't get me wrong. I think what Jesus told us was right. I think that when we walked with him, he told us about this kingdom and that building this kingdom was a good thing, and I believe him. At least I still think that most days. But some days I don't have that kind of faith. And not today, not now. Not after what we saw last week. They killed him. I don't have that kind of faith. If I don't see in his hands those nail wounds, if I can't put my finger in them, and if I can't put my hand in his side, I will not believe. Thomas's point of view doesn't seem so far-fetched when we put it like that. Because I believe in the resurrection, but I understand Thomas. Because on this side of things, I think it's a lot easier for us to believe in the resurrection. 2,000 years later, with 2,000 years worth of saints behind us to back us up, it's a little easier than when it's only been a week and you've got about a dozen and a few more men and women who are saying that this happened. But even still, I think that our modern faith has a lot in common with somebody like Thomas. Because our faith is wounded like Thomas's faith. We've seen horrifying things. If not firsthand, we read about them in the newspaper. We see them on TV. We hear about them from our neighbors. 
Our faith struggles, and rightly so. Our faith doubts in the face of great evil and what seems like infinite separation. And some people have the audacity to get up and say that that's wrong. So people are bold enough to say that your doubts and my fears are not valid expressions of faith. People beat up on Thomas, but I think there's something profoundly and deeply wrong with that. Because we need Thomas. We need Thomas right where he is and in our congregations today. Why? Because blessed are those who believe and have not seen That's said in John, but in Matthew, doesn't Jesus also say, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will inherit the kingdom of heaven. You see, people can beat up on Thomas, but we need Christians like Thomas too. We need humble Christians. We need Christians who, like Thomas, don't automatically assume that they know what God can and can't do. It's my greatest problem with Christian theologies I disagree with is not political positions or answers to individual theological questions. I'm okay with us disagreeing. My problem emerges when people believe that they know the mind of God. Because liberals and conservatives alike often come to the table with a certain amount of zealotry that makes an idol out of certainty. And they know that their way is right and that they can't suffer the presence of a fool. They either, on one hand, believe that they're right and everyone else is a bigot, or on the other, believe that they're right and everyone else denies the authority of Scripture. Those are vast generalizations that suffer without nuance, but I think you get my point. Everyone on the theological spectrum suffers, myself included for making too many assumptions. While I was preaching at a conference this last year in my sermon, I identified several false gospels, subversive narratives that undermine the truth of Christ's gospel. And one of them I called the gospel according to the Gnostics, the gospel that claims that all we need to do in our relationship with God and our relationship with Jesus is that we have to know something that the good news is all we have to do is believe X, Y, and Z and say so or pray so and then suddenly we're in heaven and if we say a certain prayer or recite a certain creed or believe a certain prescribed way about God that that's how we're justified. That gospel has no room for doubt and ambiguity like Thomas but only zealotry and certainty and it makes an idol out of knowledge and theology presuming to know the mind of God. But we cannot presume to know the mind of God. We need to be like Thomas and admit that we don't know the full extent of God's actions in the world. We need to be open to God acting in ways that we don't expect. If I can give you an example, it might seem like a little trite example, but bear with me. When I was a young man in the church I hated hymns I despised the hymnals that we'd open up and sing from on Sunday morning because I thought they were stuffy and old and didn't have anything to say to my faith experience 
But as I grew up, I experienced the liturgy of the Anglican tradition and our brothers and sisters in the Catholic tradition and saw the way that words and the way that liturgy can shape a presentation of the gospel and how much the Spirit can move in that. But in learning that, I hadn't quite learned my lesson because while I started to enjoy what we do here at 8.30 this morning, I started to not like what we did at 11. And I started to look at music by artists like Hillsong and Chris Tomlin and look down on them because I thought they're unsophisticated theology. They're charged with emotion and God can't work in that. I thought, surely God can't use my feelings. God works in words and in reason and in logic, not experience. But in truth, today, I love what we do at 8.30 and 11 o'clock. And in truth, I coordinate a worship service each week at Samford that uses both of those expressions of worship. And I see the Spirit move in them both because God is not confined to anybody's preference or anybody's preferred style of worship. Because the God that we can hold the God of our preferences, the God that I can contain in my hands, is the God that I made, not the God who made me. In the beginning, as Teresa of Avila says, I was ignorant of one thing, that God is in all things. Because Thomas, you see, didn't think that God was acting in a resurrected Jesus. But he asked God, to act in that way. Because we may look at Thomas's statement maybe not so much as a demand, but an invocation in the midst of all his suffering and all of his doubt. He asked God to come and act in this way. It was, in the end, all of Thomas's action and presence in act of faith. Now you might think Thomas's doubt as an expression of his faith, that doesn't make sense. But that brings me to my next point. We need humble Christians, and we need Christians who believe in more than just the resurrection. Because there's something unstated explicitly in the story that I think naturally goes unnoticed. Because did you see how Thomas admitted his unbelief? And then a week passed, the passage says. Thomas kept showing up. Even in all of his unbelief, even though he didn't have a risen Jesus, Thomas so believed in the kingdom that Jesus was talking about, in the mission that Jesus was talking about, and in the person of Jesus in this community that he kept showing up. To make this point a little clearer, let me tell you a story. In our pre-ministerial small group at Samford this semester, we're reading a book, a collection of parables and stories by a guy named Peter Rollins. And one of, one of them on the subject goes like this. He says that late that evening, the evening that Jesus died, a group of unknown disciples packed their few belongings and left for a distant shore, for they could not bear to stay another moment in the place where their Messiah had just been crucified. Weighed down with sorrow, they left that place never to return. 
Instead, they traveled a great distance in search of a land that they could call home. After months of difficult travel, they finally happened upon an isolated area that was ideal for setting up a new community. Here they found fertile ground, clean water, and a nearby forest from which to harvest material that they needed to build shelter. So they settled there, founding a community far from Jerusalem, a community where they vowed to keep the memory and mission of Christ alive in simplicity, love, and forgiveness, just as he had taught them. The members of this community lived in great solitude for over a hundred years, spending their days reflecting on the life and teachings of Jesus and attempting to remain faithful to his ways. And they did all this despite the overwhelming sorrow in their heart at his death. But their isolation was eventually broken when early one morning a small band of missionaries reached their settlement and these missionaries were amazed at the community they found. What was most startling to them was that these people had no knowledge of the resurrection and ascension of Christ for they had left Jerusalem before the resurrection on the third day. Without hesitation, the missionaries gathered the community together and recounted what had occurred after the bloody imprisonment and crucifixion of their Lord. And that evening, there was a great festival in the camp as people celebrated the good news of these missionaries. Yet as the night progressed, one of the missionaries noticed that the leader of the community was absent. This bothered the young man, the missionary, so he went out to look for this respected elder. And eventually he found the community's leader crouched low in a small hut on the fringe of the village, praying and weeping. Why are you in so much sorrow? asked the missionary in amazement. Today is a time for great celebration. It may indeed be a day for great celebration, but this is also a day of great sorrow, replied the elder who remained crouched on the floor. Since the founding of this community, we have followed the ways taught to us by Christ. We pursued his ways faithfully, even though it cost us dearly, and we remained resolute despite the belief that death had defeated him and would one day defeat us also. The elder slowly got to his feet and looked the missionary compassionately in his eyes. He said, each day we have forsaken our very lives because we judge Jesus wholly worthy of this sacrifice, wholly worthy of our being. But now, following your news, I am worried and fearful that my children and my children's children may follow him not because of his radical life in supreme sacrifice, but selfishly because his sacrifice will ensure their personal salvation and eternal life. And with this, the elder turned and left the hut, making his way to the celebrations that could be heard dimly in the distance, leaving the missionary crouched on the floor. I think that Thomas kept showing up because he understood the point of this parable, that what Jesus was talking about and what Jesus lived and what Jesus came to do had an appeal beyond his death in ways that Thomas didn't quite realize yet. Thomas believed in the kingdom of God. We need Christians like Thomas because we need Christians who believe in the resurrection as more than a cheap trick. Because the resurrection is more than some magician's greatest 
illusion. The resurrection is not some magic trick. It's not Jesus' triumphal laugh at the people who killed him. The resurrection is a promise of the foreshadowing of a greater kingdom. It's the promise that all things will be made new, that God is coming back for God's people, that one day it will be as John of Patmos tells us in his revelation. See, the home of God is among mortals. God will dwell with them. They will be God's peoples. And God will be with them, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more, because the first things have passed away. In his showing up, Thomas tells us that he believes in this kingdom, and he believes in it all the more when he sees the resurrected Jesus. So much so that tradition tells us that Thomas went on to found the church in Egypt and go all the way as far as India. Why? Because Thomas believed in the kingdom. Peter Rollins, who made that story, was once asked if he denied the resurrection. His response was that he denied the resurrection every single day when he did not build this kingdom. I deny the resurrection of Christ, he said, every time I do not serve at the feet of the oppressed. Every day that I turn my back on the poor, I deny the resurrection of Christ when I close my ears to the cries of the downtrodden and lend my support to an unjust and corrupt system. We need Christians like Thomas who choose to affirm the resurrection, not just as something magical, but by showing up and pledging their allegiance to that kingdom that it represents and that it embodies. So we need humble Christians, and we need Christians who believe beyond the resurrection, who have a bold commitment to the kingdom. So on the face of it, that doesn't seem to make sense. We need Christians who are humble and who are bold, and not separate at the same time. We need Christians who are willing and trying to live in tensions like that. Because our faith is a faith of tension, the kingdom is already, but not yet. Christ is risen, but yet ascended. God is close, yet far away. God is intimate and unknowable. We are called to power by giving power away. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. We are to approach the throne of God with confidence and our faith with fear and trembling. The world, especially the world of faith, is complicated, and far more complicated than we assumed. And it only gets more complicated. But in its daunting complexity, the gospel of Thomas is not arrogant or presumptuous. The gospel Thomas shows us is faithful and sincere in the face of all of it, in its doubt and in its certainty, in its humility and in its boldness. I think Thomas was absent from that first meeting for all our sakes. That if Thomas had not been absent from the first time, Jesus showed up, we wouldn't have such an example of faith. Thomas tells us that our doubts are okay, that our doubts are an acceptable expression of our faith. Thomas is never condemned by the other disciples who are also still showing up. 
for his doubts. Because lest we forget, blessed, Jesus said, are the poor in spirit. Thomas tells us that we have to believe in more than just the resurrection. We believe in a kingdom. Thomas tells us that even when we're struggling, we still need to show up. Because if we keep showing up, the community ought to lift us up, like those disciples kept welcoming Thomas in. That community ought to lift us up in our impoverished spirits. Because in the midst of that, in the midst of all our doubts, in all our struggles, even when the doors are closed, when the doors of health, wealth, prosperity, opportunity, happiness, even when those doors are all closed, Jesus can appear in the midst of us. Thomas tells us that our refrain is not just, I believe, I believe, I believe, but the refrain of that father in Mark's gospel. I believe, I believe, help my unbelief. Thomas tells us that it's okay to say at the same time, I need to see these wounds and Jesus, my master and my God. Faith is both and and not either or. Faith is messy. But even now, today, Thomas can say the words of the Apostle Paul when he says, Now I see through a mirror dimly, through a glass darkly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part, and then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. And someday, if we're like Thomas, we'll be able to look back on our lives through all of our struggles and through all of our doubts and say to those behind us who are poor in spirit the very same, blessed are you who are poor in spirit and blessed are you who believe and have not seen. I believe, I believe, help my unbelief.